1: all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing mint mobile unlimited premium wireless to get 30 30 everybody get 30 everybody get 20 20 20 get 20 20 get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month so give it a try at mintmobilecom slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promo for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com. welcome to the new books network Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emrich. Today, we're speaking with Samuel Milner, author of Robbing Peter to Pay Paul, Power, Profits, and Productivity in Modern America. Welcome, Samuel.
0: All right. Thanks for having me.
1: Samuel, talk about your background and how you became interested in this topic and eventually came to write the book.
0: Sure. It goes back quite a ways. It was actually the Uh, Summer after my freshman year of college, I was interning uh, at the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland, and I was processing papers from Joseph and Feist, which was a a major menswear company back in the day. And they had these uh, naval procurement contracts from World War II. So I get interested, oh, how did the Navy procure uh, uniforms? And as I look into it, I realize, well, it's not the military side that's interesting. It's the civilian side. How does civilian production Continue during the war under price controls and materials controls and wage controls, and so I start looking into the garment industry during World War II all throughout college. That gets me interested in business government regulation. So I uh, go to graduate school in economic history to continue looking into that subject, realizing this is a not just a wartime story. This is a twentieth century American story continuing down to the present, and. Uh, as I worked on that, I realized, well, it's also a legal story. So then I went back and, and got a law degree in the, in the process as well. So uh, a long time coming uh, to get this book, but um, finally being able to put all my research together in one place.
1: And so that's uh, your specialty, your uh, professional uh, focus is on kind of business and economic history and the interactions with law and regulation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always would say I'm, I'm an economic historian interested in business and regulation.
1: Perfect. Um, th- the term robbing Peter to pay Paul is an old saying. It gets used in different contexts throughout history, but most commonly, I think, in economics and uh, most common within economics to talk about kind of redistribution of in- income. Uh, in your story, who is Peter and, and who is Paul? Um.
0: Peter would be, in this sense, probably business, capital. Paul would be labor. And I say Peter and Paul because there's one point in the book where I say robbing Peter to pay Phil, Phil being Phil Murray, the head of the United Steelworkers Union. So this was a, uh, a favorite retort by, by management back in the day. Uh, you know, you think you're getting higher wages. You're not getting higher wages. You're going to have to bear higher prices uh, in order to pay your higher wages.
1: Got it. Um, from a high level uh, you start introducing this book as there's a narrative about what transpired in this golden age of capitalism that you think is somewhat misplaced in in how company management led the organization influenced the country uh, and you have an alternative take can you just differentiate a little bit between those two because that's also kind of why you why you wrote the book right,
0: right, yeah I mean uh, when you look at the the way historians look back at this period, I think even you know pop uh, the way we generally look at it in in American society today, it's this golden age of American capitalism. Wages are high, inequality is low, and that's often tied in with this idea that uh, management is not interested in maximizing shareholder value. The shareholders tend to be dispersed; they're weak; they're retail investors at the time. Uh, instead, you have management squaring off with big business with big government with big labor and big business they're all coming to the table and it's a type of stakeholder capitalism model uh, as we might call it today and so when you look at say the business roundtable, what they said recently a couple years ago an economy that serves all americans high wages uh, good prices for our suppliers protecting the environment working with local governments to promote jobs and development. All of that are ideas that we see associated with this golden era, a uh, golden age of American capitalism. And what I'm doing in the book is saying, well, actually, uh, that's management's, what they were saying in this time, management has a lot of authority, a lot of discretion, especially in these core industries, steel, auto, uh, where there's a lot of pricing power, uh, management says we can, distribute income to our stakeholders, not just our shareholders, to all of our stakeholders, but it's going to be on our terms. Uh, And we want to pursue these long-term objectives of growth with also uh, price stability. And so pushing back on this idea that management is either just reactionary against the New Deal in this era, they're living with it. They're they're coming to terms with labor and government. Um, they're not just saying no, they're learning to say, how can we live without giving up our economy in this world? But at the same time, acknowledging management controls the pricing function um, in a lot of these industries. And so that's going to give them the ability to decide how income is going to be distributed. They're going to still bargain with labor. Uh, the government is still going to get involved through various forms of incomes policy. But management is far from powerless, uh, far from a passive actor uh, having to deal with these other restraints on its authority.
1: Perfect. Let's, so you mentioned the new deal. Let's start there. What other than the, the, the rise of organized labor, um, what else comes out of the new deal that influences the the next five decades of this, of this story?
0: Sure. Well, obviously, as you said, organized labor is, is one of the most enduring parts of the new deal legacy. Um, On a a broad base, it's this idea that the government should be involved in the economy, um, in the fabric of the political economy. Um, You know, when we divide up the New Deal, we often say there's the first New Deal, which is uh, the National Recovery Administration, this idea that there was too much supply in the economy. If we restrict supply, if we, you know, encourage cartels that will promote development, obviously that's not a great idea. Um, You know, the NRA goes away very quickly, the National Recovery Administration by 1935. And instead we get this idea, well, we should promote demand. And so we get into, you know, the Keynesian phase of the New Deal uh, coming into the late 1930s. And, and there's been some economics work as well, showing um, maybe a lot of the is really being driven by monetary policy and not just uh, government spending, which might not actually be quite as as deficit spending as the popular imagination might think. Um, so that isn't one legacy of the New Deal, is that you have this idea that the government can maintain uh, aggregate demand. Um, this is especially the influence of World War II, because by, you know, on the eve of World War II, it's not clear that the government can, right? We still have very high unemployment. There's still a lot of push to say we need structural reform in the economy. Um, there was a large push during the New Deal to say the problem was monopoly. The problem was you have concentrated industry. They have the ability to hold prices high when the market falls. They'd rather you know lose sales than get into a spiral of wage cuts and price cuts. And so uh, there is this push for structural reform. That never goes away entirely. But once you begin to realize you can use fiscal policy, monetary policy to drive aggregate demand, uh, it takes a bit of a back seat, as, as do some of these other structural ideas, antitrust reform, um, government uh, controls over the economy that, that we saw during parts of the New Deal. And so That is the other legacy, I think. Once you see that the Long New Deal beginning in 1933 and continuing all the way through the end of World War II, this lasting legacy enshrined in the Employment Act of 1946, the government is going to have uh, the authority and the duty to maintain the economy, not by intervening in private decisions, but through macroeconomic uh,
1: tools. And that introduces the the fascinating tension between the government that just got a whole lot bigger and more powerful and corporate America, which um, does have some uh, oligopolies in certain industries that you focus on in the book. And so it's this battle of of like titans in a way to me, where you have in the 30s and 40s, it's fascinating, you listen to labor uh, negotiations, and they're not just arguing for wages for their members, they're, they're simultaneously arguing about what prices should be in the companies? And, and that's really the heart of the book. Are they doing that just because so they can manage their own members real wage increases, realizing if you just pass if everyone just passes along their wages increases, we don't do any better. Uh, or is it uh, trying to control that tool that management has, as you've already introduced and goes throughout the book, which is their tool is price. Can you just talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it, it you know it depends. It depends on the labor leader. It depends on the union. Obviously, you see certain, uh, you know, labor leaders. Walter Ruther at the United Auto Workers, most famously, tells General Motors, uh, nineteen forty-five. He says, "If you really believe that higher wages are going to lead to higher prices, if you don't think there's an alternative, prove it. Open up the books for public inspection and prove it to us." and you know this is it's a bit of a european style bargain is what ruther would like there right this idea in europe is that you have small open economies um they're you know heavily exporting so they need to remain competitive how do you do that well you want to make sure your your labor costs remain competitive well okay but if labor says we're going to take a wage cut or we're going to allow wages to grow slowly so you can accumulate capital to converge on the American capital labor ratio, we want to make sure that you're just not pocketing the money uh, for profits. So we want to make sure you're really going to plow that back in investment like you claim that you're just not going to raise prices and gouge us and the rest of the public. So in Europe, of course, you could various forms of co-determination uh, labor representatives on corporate boards, some type of government uh, peak organization bargaining between Big business, big labor, and it's that's not at all what we do in the United States. you know, maybe maybe Chrysler in the late seventies will will need givebacks from the auto workers and agree to that. But at this point in the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, management is saying, no way. Um, you know, we control price. You want to talk about bread and butter? You want to talk about wages? You know, management again, depending on the company, GM is is pretty forward looking about things. Uh, the steel industry is not. Um, you know, has to be really be dragged into giving uh, pension funds, healthcare funds, really by the government forcing forcing the steel industry to by uh, calling you know special advisory boards and, and presidential committees to to oversee these bargaining rounds. But by doing that, you're basically saying we're going to try and narrow down labor to wages or, or labor costs and labor's. Of course, they're going to talk about pricing. They're still going to say, you can afford it. You don't need to raise prices. But but labor is not going to be part of that process, except uh, really the publicity-facing side of negotiations. They're, they're not going to bargain over price. Um, and once GM stares down Ruther's demands 45-46, that's, that's really the heyday um, ruther keeps making these statements throughout his career and, and as do a lot of other labor leaders but by that point they're more rhetorical points in bargaining that you can afford it you don't need to raise prices don't blame us for for your own
1: pricing decisions right it, it's interesting i think people today that complain every time there's a, a a government program uh they screamed socialist overreach those folks would be shocked i think to go back and read this history and learn just how involved in the day-to-day economy the government was in a lot of things including what we're talking about managing prices and wages so here's another term I've, I've kind of asked the, I'm gonna ask you to introduce these terms as they come out in the story to talk about lowercase p and lowercase a price administration and uh, and that there actually was an office of price administration
0: yeah so Price administration, administered prices is a theory developed by Gardner Means, uh, an influential uh, economist in the 1930s, um, best known for for working on theory of the corporation with uh, uh, Burley. And Means' theory, it's based on these observations he makes during the first couple years of the Great Depression. And what he finds is that industrial prices remain rigid, but output collapses, whereas farm prices fall. Uh, as output remains constant. And he says, well, there's something weird about the industrial economy. And, and uh, Gardner Means was actually a textile executive before he became an economist. So he, he knows what he's talking about from, from his own career. He knows uh, if you're a company, you'd rather keep prices high rather than, than cut back on uh, prices during an output, uh, during a, a general decline in output. And it's, it's self-rational. Um, It's not necessarily a bad thing for the company, but it's bad for society if prices remain high. And so Means promotes this idea that um, in an oligopoly industry in particular, uh, management's going to choose to keep prices high. Incidentally, after World War II, uh, Means changes this. It's no longer that in a downturn, companies will keep prices high. It's that uh, during a general expansion, companies will want to raise prices rather than expand output. So he he actually flips flips, uh, the direction of administered prices. But it's a very influential theory within the New Deal uh, circles in the 1930s, 1940s. And so when World War II breaks out um, and the government decides, well, we have an emergency situation. We need to make sure resources get to where they need to be for the war effort, as well as uh, we know inflation is going to be very bad for home front morale. We remember what happened during World War I. We're going to be spending a lot of money uh inflation's going to be coming back soon and so uh, creating an agency known as the office of price administration uh, to oversee price controls over the economy and uh, leon henderson who was an important new dealer is the initial administrator john kenneth galbraith the economist is his deputy uh, at the start and, and this agency is going to operate from in, you know various forms and various names from from 19 really 41 42 all the way through uh 1946
1: and this is where we get into and really also the heart of the book one more terminology uh, piece the the wage price policy and its relationship with labor productivity very traditional de- definition originally and the concept that there's this direct positive correlation between productivity what companies can pay and um, how they can, you know, distribute income if you could.
0: Sure. Yeah. So um, there's this famous relationship that basically says that uh, labor productivity, which is basically saying how much output you get for one unit of labor. Usually we say, you know, output per man hour, but you can pick whichever denominator you want. um, That's going to set a cap to how quickly, uh, Real wages can rise without shifting the distribution of income. Um, and it's it's kind of remarkable that for a very long span of the 20th century that we actually don't see much shift in the distribu- in the distribution of income between capital and labor. It, it wobbles around, but it's it's historically very constant. And and right. uh John Maynard Keynes one point, he calls it, you know, it's it's a Something like, he says, something like, it's a great mystery. We, we don't know why that settled on these numbers, but, but these are the numbers that it's settled on and it appears fixed. Um, and so productivity really becomes the heart of trying to figure out how, if your management, how you distribute income between wages and prices, because as I said, that is what is going to keep the distribution of income fixed. Of course, if you're management, you, you probably want to shift it a little to capital. If you're labor, you want to shift it a little to labor side. Um But it becomes the great real benchmark for trying to figure out how quickly should wages be allowed to rise. And of course, as time goes on, management realizing, well, it's not just wages, it's labor costs, right? We have to pay pensions, we have to pay health care, other fringe benefits. You have to count all of that against productivity growth. Whose productivity growth? Should it be uh, the growth of our own industry, right? General Motors says, we have great productivity, we can afford to pay a lot and won't have to raise prices. The steel industry says, oh, no, you don't, because we have slow productivity. The steel workers are going to want the same as the auto workers get, and we would have to raise prices because otherwise profits are going to bear the brunt of of that uh, matching wage increase, of that pattern wage increase. And so productivity at the national average really becomes this rallying point for what's known as a non-inflationary wage price policy. And it's an idea It's developed a lot in the late 1940s by, by a number of economists, and it becomes really this touchstone for political economy over the next several decades. It's an idea that uh, wages, labor compensation should, on average, track the growth of national productivity. Labor productivity most commonly on average. Uh, That would allow prices to remain stable on average because unit labor costs on average remain stable. And of course, there will be some variations. Uh, A company with below average productivity should raise its prices to offset that. A company with above average productivity growth should lower its uh, prices. Not that many do, but that's the theory. And on average, we would have price stability with rising real wages. It's the exact outcome you would expect in a perfectly competitive textbook economy. You would have wages growing, uh, real wages growing at the same pace as does uh, labor productivity. The inc- uh, the uh, return per unit of capital remains constant. But as more capital is invested, um, capital will, re- you know, the, the the gross amount of, return going to capital increases, and so we have a higher real wage, we have a steady return on an increasing amount of capital, and so the distribution of income remains constant. So the idea is if management and labor recognize productivity as the touchstone for how they are setting prices and wages, we can approximate uh, the outcomes we would expect in a perfectly textbook competitive economy in an economy which is far from the perfect textbook model.
1: Right. You, you you introduced the concept of uh, what I'll call and you do in the book, fringe benefits coming into the total compensation picture. There's also the issue of, I think, a, a company making investments to make their workers more productive, you know, uh, technology, capital investments. When does the when does the, the term total factor productivity come into the discussion and, and how does that modify the, the calculation?
0: Sure. So total factor productivity is this concept that uh, rather than just looking at output per unit labor, which is what we can colloquially mean when we say productivity, uh, we should account for all the inputs that we can. So labor and capital, maybe land, maybe some other outputs. And, and in a perfect world, of course, total factor productivity is zero because we can account for every single input. We know how much technology we provide. We know how much stuff, material, immaterial, you name it. In the real world, we don't know that. And so total factor productivity is used often to represent technology. This, you know, once we account for everything physical that we can quantify, how much is going to be left over explaining how much more stuff we get per some amount of real input. And total factor productivity is devised, um, It's associated most strongly with the economist John Kendrick, who develops this in the 1950s. And as you know from the book, what makes this a very interesting story is John Kendrick, who is developing this this very important economic um, measurement, is closely in touch with a number of business leaders at this time. And and they are tracking his efforts uh, very closely. Uh, Alfred Sloan, the, the General Motors executive um his foundation is actually supporting Kendrick's work and there's a point when Sloan is working on his memoirs and he's trying to figure out you know productivity growth for, for his memoirs and he basically says you know we've been funding this this Kendrick guy for some time we should look into him and and get the answers from him for my book um, and so Kendrick counts up all the labor he counts up all the capital you know some other measurable inputs and he says uh real total factor productivity grows, but it grows more slowly than labor productivity because you're accounting for these other aspects. And business people read this and they look at it and they say, well, what that means is you need to account for capital because otherwise labor is going to keep getting more and more um, from us. And they're not understanding that capital Uh, The returns on capital are going to get depressed at a certain point if labor just keeps taking more and more. Now, labor, of course, is also on the John Kendrick. And labor says, hang on, there's this new uh, dangerous theory out there called total factor productivity. And if you base your wages on total factor productivity, you will stabilize the total share of income. uh, Not as proportional terms, but you'll just you'll just keep everything constant. Capital will get a larger share than labor. And next thing you know, there's not enough money to go around to buy stuff, and the economy is going to collapse. You got to use you got to use labor productivity. So you, there's this huge tension in the late 1950s, 1960s about what measure of productivity to use, um, and it is it is one of these really applied economics, um, quite stunning to see how what's you know college level economic theory is somehow working its way into. Uh, these managerial publications and these labor negotiations
1: is that is that what you call because now you've brought us into the 50s uh what you call the new look Mm -hmm. is is all about total factor productivity
0: yeah so management management learns from kendrick over the course of the 1950s and they're realizing uh, for several reasons that a during the during the mid-1950s management does not really care about productivity as a measure They, they might say it during negotiations they might no economists might tell them this is this is the limit to how fast your wages can grow without changing your prices but the economy is doing really well in the 50s no one wants to really work through a strike and and have to hold down wages that way and and so it's easier just to say tell you what we'll give you three years four years five years even contract collective bargaining agreement Um, We will guarantee you as a baseline minimum every year, we'll give you the real increase in productivity. To make sure it's real, we'll also give you a cost of living escalator. We know that's what you want for a single year. So to buy multiple years of labor peace, we'll throw in pension, we'll throw in healthcare, we'll throw in uh, vacation days, you name it. We'll throw in some extra maybe wage benefits down the line too, and uh, management at least at certain companies knows, hey guys, this is actually a lot higher than, than that productivity trend. If you don't want profits to fall, you're gonna to have to raise prices in order to pass on these, these increases in unit labor costs. But again, the economy is doing really well. And um, you know at General Electric, there's this great back and forth, Lamar Boulware, who's uh, their head labor relations guy, tells the board, he says, 1955 negotiations, he says, do you want a stable price wage outcome? And the board says, no, we want five years of labor peace. He goes, well, I can get you that, but it's going to be expensive. And they say, do it. And Boolware really, he just feels awful about this. And you can tell for the rest of his career and when he's writing the rest of his life, uh, he really wants to atone for for having allowed uh, labor compensation to get so out of line with productivity. So by the late 1950s, Um, we enter what I call the new look. It was a term coined by um, uh, an important uh, labor relations author in the 1950s and uh, describing how companies seem to be taking a harder line in collective bargaining negotiations in the late 50s. And what I argue is driving this is this recognition that labor compensation has gotten far out of line with productivity This is an era, of course, when American companies begin to see European competitors, Japanese competitors are uh, converging on the American capital labor ratio. They're importing or developing new technologies that are just as good or better than American production technologies. Um, Of course, you have the Russians and Sputnik. uh, And so concerns about scientific and technological progress there and management says, Look, we need more capital. We need to get the wage price balance back in line. We don't want to have to keep raising prices because that's just going to increase import penetration. It's going to shrink our markets in the long run. Uh, how do you get capital then? Well, you could go on the market. But if you're the steel industry, you're, you're not a very high return. You're not a very glamorous industry. Uh, we don't want to issue more debt. So we'll raise it internally. How do we do that? Well, labor has done really well this last decade. They're going to need to tamper down and uh, focus on what the company can afford through productivity. And so you get this massive interchange between companies about, well, what is productivity? Uh, how do we measure it? Do we use labor or total factor? Should we use our own trend or the national trend? And I think what's really stunning for me as a historian, not just as an economic historian, but as a, as a historian in this period, is when you just trace who is talking to who Uh, During this period, I mean, you see these letters or these memos, um, you know, the the DuPont executive writing to Ford saying, hey, you know, when we were at the golf course the other week, your guy, you told me your people have a handle on this productivity concept. Can I send my people over to your company to to learn about this thing? And so uh, DuPont has this slide presentation on total factor productivity, and you can just look through their records and see how many companies come and watch the slide presentation. Uh, Ford sends their people, General Motors, General Electric, U.S. Steel, the National Association of Manufacturers. I mean, all of these companies watching these slide presentations and communicating with one another, reading Kendrick. You know, it's almost like a a book group about John Kendrick's uh, productivity in the United States. And so this, this gives rise to this new look focus. And it's going to be accompanied by new techniques in labor relations, certainly, because labor, uh, you know, obviously is not going to want to go willingly to, after you're accustomed to 8% nominal wage increases every year, you're not suddenly going to say, we're going to agree to 2%. So there are some innovative labor relations strategies, um, Lamuille Bullwares, infamous Boulware take it or leave it bargaining at General Electric. Uh, which admittedly plays a little fast and loose with some of the labor relations laws. Uh, GE, GE thought it was absolutely fine. The, the courts will say otherwise by the end of the 60s. Um, I have a long discussion about what the steel industry does, uh, how they develop what's known as, a, as the coordinating committee, where the entire industry will present a unified front to the Steelworkers Union, and it's you know all for one, one for all. Um, and there's a very contentious bargaining round in 1959, which uh, goes into a you know, four-month strike and shutdown of the domestic steel industry. Uh, but in the end, it's a very successful strategy. Um, you do see a cut, a reduction in labor compensation during this period. Now, of course, the background to this is also that uh, we are in the midst of the Eisenhower recessions. That uh, Dwight Eisenhower, had seen the wage-price spiral, says, "Well." The government needs to put its own house in order before we can expect the private sector to do so. So, Eisenhower is pushing for a balanced budget. The Federal Reserve under uh, Bill Martin, similar ideas. We have to uh, restrain the money, you know, this famous take away the punch bowl when the party gets started, uh, counter cyclical monetary policy. So, that's also influencing uh, the, the labor relations of this time, too, that you are in a bit of a downturn. But I really think that if you just focus on that short run change, you're missing. All the preparation work that's management has been developing over the 1950s using productivity and bargaining and developing these new labor relations techniques to put productivity at the center of its wage price vision.
1: the uh so it takes us to the 60s because they did get those multi-year contracts mm-hmm. uh in the 50s that happened that did not prevent a a showdown between jfk and the steel industry in in 1962 uh and then the other thing that comes out i start reading about in the 60s or is a new term the incomes policies mm-hmm. um what what were those in, and and um, and, and how did how did they work with the, the government's role and, and, and management's uh, position? Sure.
0: So as you're right, in the 1960s, this this new concept of incomes policies really comes to the fore. And the way I use an incomes policy in the book is it's basically the public sector version of a privately developed wage price policy. Usually the exact same idea, wages on average should follow national labor productivity so that unit labor costs on average remain stable and prices on average remain stable with some individual adjustments if you beat or fall short of that average. The difference is the government is the one telling management and labor to abide by these policies. Up through uh, circa 1960, outside of World War II and the Korean War, if there is a wage-price policy, it is voluntarily adopted by management uh, at this time. Um, you know, Truman and Eisenhower will uh, use exhortations. They, you know, tr- actually, it's amazing if you go back and you look at Eisenhower's State of the Union address, how much he's talking about private wage-price responsibility. Um, but, but again, it's private wage-price responsibility that changes with the Kennedy administration. Um, Because Kennedy, again, this Keynesian idea where the government's going to be responsible for managing the macroeconomic economy, if you have an incomes policy that the idea goes, you can, depending on what side of the uh, economy you're on, you can either increase the amount of employment you can get without inflation because you've basically removed some of this wage price spiral from siphoning off aggregate demand. You won't have to put as much demand in and and risk inflation. Or if the economy is uh, in a downturn, you won't need to cut back on aggregate demand as much because wages and prices will become much more responsive and you won't have to slam on the brakes in order to restore price stability. You can get price stability at less sacrifice of employment. And so this becomes a very important part of the Keynesian program during the Kennedy Johnson years. It's actually, it's very interesting when you look at John F Kennedy's council of economic advisors that is devising this, uh, what are known as the wage price guideposts in the 1962 economic report of the president, it's Bob Solo, the, the famous economist, Bob Solo really is the person responsible for writing this. Paul Samuelson had previously told Kennedy, uh, you know, we need a wage price policy. That's going to be a way to pursue our goals without inflation. John Kenneth Galbraith, obviously, in promoting this to the Kennedy administration, a lot of important economists getting on board with this. And so the Kennedy administration, as you noted, 1962 um, targets the steel industry for raising prices after a, a labor negotiation. And the background to this is that uh, the Kennedy administration sees steel as the bellwether for Uh, the wage price spiral which coming out of the last 20 years steel has been leading wage and price growth of course in 1960 steel finally through this new look strategy uh, convinces the union to uh, take about four percent increase instead of the eight percent it was used to prices remain stable Uh, what changes in the interim well first kennedy had worked out a deal where the labor, uh, where the steel workers would take even less money in 1961, if the industry agreed not to raise prices. Of course, the industry says we never talked prices, we only talked wages. Right. And, you know, and, and we would have gotten there anyways, even without you government. Uh, that's one aspect. The other aspect, of course, is that the Secretary of Labor during the Kennedy years, the, uh, Kennedy's initial Secretary of Labor is Arthur, is, um, Arthur Goldberg, who's the uh former general counsel of the United Steelworkers. So, you know, again, he has a a bit of a personal bone to pick uh, coming out of this this last negotiation around. And so uh, there is this famous showdown. Kennedy basically, you know, threatens and controls the industry into rescinding its price increases. Um, But then he backs off because there's such a strong negative reaction against this the industry says look well then how else are we going to get the capital we need to grow and if you look at uh investment and in s- capital spending in the steel industry it plummets right after this too there's huge uncertainty on the market um it's the largest one-day drop in the down jones since 1929 actually i mean it, it's a very bad it's a very bad uh outcome for kennedy in the long run so he, he takes a step back um the wage price guidepost though, they're still in the economic report. They're still being promoted by the Council of Economic Advisors. And the Council of Economic Advisors sees the economy is beginning to recover uh, 1963, 1964, and they say, look, we're going to need an incomes policy to stop management and labor from siphoning off all this demand we're putting into the economy in the form of a wage price spiral. And so when Lyndon Johnson becomes president, Uh, He agrees that we need to do something about this. And Johnson, unlike Kennedy, is much more willing to intervene in these individual bargaining rounds. Um, You know, there's this in 1965, the the steel industry is negotiating. And and, um, when you look at the records, it's really true. Johnson really does lock the industry and the union in the executive office building and says, you're not getting out until you agree on a 3.2% a year price, uh, wage increase with price stability. So uh, this is the first foray into Americans' incomes policies. Obviously, something that's very prominent in Europe, a lot of European economists wondering when the Americans are going to catch up and start using this strategy to uh, get wage and price stability. Uh, and we finally begin to see it, you know, at some degree in the Kennedy years, and then really with an interventionist streak uh, under Johnson.
1: And and it's, it's at this time in the story, talking about LBJ, where I also pause and go, wait, this whole time we've been reading about labor and management chopping up the world as if they're in isolation, when in reality, you still have fiscal and monetary policy. You have three wars, which we could talk about for an hour, like how you manage these things during wartime, how you as a historian look back and look at the data and try to make heads or tail of it. So... This is a, a good time to ask you because you brought up his name to introduce uh, Paul Samuelson and his when does and the Phillips curve and w- when he uh, thought that he we could shift the curve down into the left. That was a pretty uh, uh, bold right. Yeah, endeavor. Mean, right.
0: Right. Th- th- that is the that is the um, the tagline from when Samuelson and Solo write their uh, Phillips curve paper in 1960. This influential relationship between uh, wages and prices where. Uh, or wages, uh, prices. What for output? Me, output and, and prices. This idea that as, um, you know, as, as uh, trying to take two go. When when you look at where the economy is, it looks like there's a stable relationship that prices uh, rise as unemployment falls, and rise, inflation rises. Right. The rate of price increases. Right. And can you manipulate where we are on that curve? Right. Fiscal and monetary policy, according to Samuelson and Solo, they're going to that's going to get you up along to choose a point on this menu of options is the famous line. Do you want, uh, you know, 4% unemployment with price stability? Do you want 2% unemployment with high inflation? Do you want 6% unemployment with with uh, lower inflation? And. They say though, well, what if you could get an entirely better menu of options? What if you could shift that curve? How do you shift the curve? Well, you make the economy uh, respond to stimulus differently. You don't siphon off demand in the form of a wage price spiral. And when you need to reduce inflation, uh, you make sure that wages and prices adjust more rapidly. And you do that through an incomes policy. So it all links back to this idea of you know Keynesian demand management—that if you have a incomes policy in place, fiscal and monetary policy. Well, if you're a Keynesian, fiscal policy, but also monetary policy is increasingly important, obviously, and that Keynesians are beginning to recognize that uh, by the 1960s. But if you have an incomes policy in place, it's going to make your uh, fiscal and monetary policy work so much better. And and Pat Samuelson will say, I mean, this is. When in his first edition of his economics textbook, he says, you know, we know how to get the economy out of depression. We figure that out. We can use uh, Keynesian demand management. What we haven't figured out is how to prevent that demand management from giving rise to a wage price spiral as business and labor siphon off that demand. That okay. is our biggest challenge. That's And that is really the defining challenge of post-war Keynesianism uh, is how do you reconcile private responsibility with this newfound public macroeconomic responsibility,
1: so you've got uh, the Johnson era, the economy's strong. We've got the Vietnam War. I think I think uh, government policy is still pretty stimulative. And just as we've we're starting to get our hands around the Phillips curve, we meet Richard Nixon and the seventies. He's thinking initially about going back towards macro and away from income policies, but then at some point. Punts does a one eighty and imposes price and wage controls.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the Nixon controls, you know, it's often historians often wonder why does he do controls, right? Why, why does all of a sudden he wants controls? And even more surprisingly, why do businesses want him to impose
1: controls? Right.
0: And there's this, you know, there's one idea out there is well, businesses want to make labor look bad politically. They say, well, labor is the cause, and you need wage controls to stop them. Well, that's one theory. I think what's going on is management realizes we can't do it anymore. Times have changed from the new look in that late 50s. You know, uh, GE, as I mentioned, they had these labor strategies which were not entirely in line with labor law. By the late 60s, um, the courts have said you can't keep using these strategies. And so GE uh, really finds itself in the middle of a very long strike. The unions have smartened up to what GE was doing as well, and so uh, GE agrees to a, for at least for General Electric, a very substantial uh, increase. And everybody knows, well, geez, that GE is paying a lot more than productivity. They've been the ones pushing this all these years. If they don't believe in it, nobody does. General Motors, um, the Lordstown strike in 1970, same thing. They say, well we know our guys we've been giving them good wages. You know, that's what our workers want. It turns out, no, this is a new generation. They want dignity in the workplace. They want more respect for management. They just don't want money. And, a GE or GM finds that it's, you know, 25 year old strategy of wage price policy just doesn't work. The steel industry says, Hey guys, we're not even going to bother trying anymore because if we have a strike, uh, the Japan and Europe is just going to export even more steel to the United States. Right. We're already at you know sixteen twenty percent import penetration. We don't want to lose any more market share. We'll just pay whatever it takes to avoid a strike. And the Nixon administration starts to see this, and they realize, well, if if business doesn't support us in uh, what they called backboning, this idea that the government will put its own house in order, and any company or labor union that uh, raises wages and prices uh, will find itself priced out of the market, and will have to show restraint. Uh, Backboning's not working, so I guess we should go to an incomes policy. The rationale being, uh, no one believes that anybody else is going to cut back during an inflationary spiral. If you put a shock therapy of you know price and wage freeze in place, and then you you know the government tells you, everybody, okay, take a step back altogether, you coordinate it, you'll be able to combat ex- expectations of inflation um, without as much pain as if you had to just rely on the federal reserve to, to tighten the money supply. And so Nixon imposes wage and price controls, um, August of 1971. They are, at least they look somewhat effective initially at stopping inflation. Of course, then there's a massive expansion of, uh, the money supply as Nixon is, is pushing the fed to expand, um, demand from the fiscal side. Also, it's not, uh, The deficit is not falling as quickly as Nixon had liked. And of course, then you get the supply shocks, the the great grain robbery of 1973, pushing up food prices even before uh, the oil shock in in late 1973. And and by that point, management, um, as well as labor, but management certainly says, look, these price controls, they're not working. We might have wanted them initially because we thought we couldn't do it on our own. Uh, But now that we've seen what happens when you give control to the government, and you realize it's not just wages that get restrained, but prices and profits are not doing very well at a time when gasoline prices are spiking, uh, the cost of living spiking, um, you know, our, our inputs are spiking. Uh, yeah, just let us go back to our own thing and, and raise prices and we'll, we'll figure it out eventually.
1: Yeah, right. so, <laughs> and now and now so now we have uh, the word stagflation comes into the vernacular in the 70s. Uh, Ford is a bit of a short timer with his uh, whip inflation now buttons. Uh, Carter not much better except that he hires Paul Volcker. Reagan wins, and uh, together they uh, we have a double dip recession. And that period. Comes to an end. What what else changes um, in the discussion about prices and wages? Because although you've referenced a couple times how the steel industry was exposed to competition compared to today, broadly speaking, it was the there was an absence of international competition that also kind of prevented you know management could kind of do what they wanted with prices. But I think that starts changing more right, dramatically yeah.
0: by, by the late seventies. Um, it's beginning to spread import competition and these pressures where you know company ge has always kind of said well we're, we're going to be exposed but for the most part it was going to be in the future but that future is finally arriving in the 70s and you know the auto industry with gasoline prices being high you know realizing uh small cars are in we're not doing so great at that we're starting to lose ground in that market and so that is going to be another big influence uh Certainly, by the nineteen eighties, late seventies, by the eighties, um, import competition also becoming an external constraint on pricing. Um, it's no longer this free economy about well, we're an oligopoly in a in a closed market. It's now we are uh, three large producers in a worldwide market where we no longer have
1: that same type of market power over uh, over the prices that we used to. Right, and. Now let's let's jump to current day because this book couldn't be more timely. There's nothing in the business news except discussions about inflation and wage price spirals. But uh, leading up to that, though, other things have changed since the 80's. Uh, two of them I'd, I'd love your uh, perspective on as we think about that old term, productivity, how we measure it? Are we measuring it right? what's going on with it. One of the big changes is uh, we've shifted to this service economy. Um, We're not making as much as we used to. And the other, and I did a whole hour on this with an economist uh, from the UK, is the rise of the intangible economy. Uh, Those investments were supposed to increase productivity the last 20 years, we're not so sure. How how do you think about it now with your background, looking at this discussion about productivity and uh, service economy, the rise of the intangible economy.
0: Right, because when you get to the service economy, it, it's often said that productivity is going to grow more slowly in services, right? It's the famous, uh, you can't produce a Mozart string quartet with fewer than four musicians. Any faster, right. Of course, you could put it on CD or, or you know the internet and distribute it to more people. So um, there is right. productivity growth in, in the service sector. But as we've seen, productivity uh, has slowed um when you look from where it was in the mid-20th century to where it is today productivity growth is much slower and that would uh again cap where we could have those real wage increases without having a distribution of income of course we also have this worldwide shift where the uh labor share of income globally has fallen uh, relative to capital for years, oh, as I mentioned, we always thought that was going to be stable and, and we've seen it falling. And right. there's been a lot of economics work about why that is, is it about globalization? Is it about changes in tax policy? Um, is it changes in, you know, some type of, of background economic concentration or, or antitrust laws becoming less efficient? Um, you know, how much of it is just an artifact that, uh, Depreciation has increased for a lot of companies, right? You need to replace a computer every year or two. It's not, you, you could run a blast furnace 50 years, hundred years, but you can't run uh, Microsoft Windows for, for more than a year or two without needing a new version. So um, how much of the shift to, to capital is even real versus how much is, are we just seeing um, gross capital earnings versus on net after depreciation? Has there been a change? So it's, it's very complicated and I always defer to the economists to figure out why that is. Um, right. but, but certainly, certainly, uh, I think now, especially with inflation coming back, we are seeing this idea that um, should, or is it desirable that uh, distribution of income between labor and capital, the way that wages are growing, uh, real wages as well as, as nominal in the face of inflation, um, should there be a way to reorganize this? Or should there be, um, you know, should it just keep continuing on pace? Should the government get involved? Of course, we've also heard if, you know, if the theory is that the the, the labor share is falling, the capital share is growing, has something to do with corporate concentration, well, then, you know, is, is that just another echo of this wage price policy? Is management using its Power and its discretion in ways differently than it would have in the mid-20th century because, of course, now uh, stakeholder value has become the, the the driving concern of management. It's no longer, uh, excuse me, shareholder value is, is the driving concern. It's no longer um, this idea that, you know, shareholders are one of our concerns. It's, we now have, that is, that is the purpose of the corporation and even when you get something like this, uh, business roundtable, an economy that serves all Americans. When you, when you look at what management's doing, there there really has been very little change um, in terms of who is getting the fruits of this of this corporate growth. So, absolutely uh, very relevant today. And I can talk more about productivity specifically. I can talk about uh, the inflation issue. Uh, if there's a spurt, if there's a specific area we wanted me to.
1: Well, there, there's a there's the. Um... The notion that um, that we've talked about the, the whole duration of the book that productivity improvements should keep have an influence on keeping prices down. It's we're, we're not seeing it mm-hmm. in terms of prices. We we um, we. The other parallels are we do have this industry concentration. At least I think in certain mm-hmm. industries, new industries right. at the top. Um, what what. If you had the magic wand, you know, uh, and could do anything you wanted, um, I know you, you said you defer to economists, but I'm not—I'm not a professional economist either. I'm, but I'm an investor, so it influences sure, how sure. I, you know, think about the world. Uh, what what do we what do we do? We have very very low unemployment. Um, we do have wide open, pretty wide open free trade with some, you know, obviously nuanced protections here and there. Um, one thing that didn't come up in the, in the, in the book yet, because it's probably a new development is it's always management and, and shareholders versus labor, but there's a, there's a beef the last 25 years with how much the management is paying themselves. Right. right. Um, and then lastly, I, I wonder when the, the interesting notion of, uh, employee, uh, stock ownership comes into the picture, cause that's an interesting, uh, fringe benefit to let them, participate in whatever value they create so i'll leave it to you to sure. talk about whatever you want at this point sure
0: sure i mean i think i mean the lesson a lesson from the book i think is that there's a big difference between private responsibility and public responsibility um, and i think that you know to, to expect the private sector to show restraint it has to be in their own self-interest to show restraint Right. Uh, because otherwise you can't blame them you know you know as, as I wrote the book, the more and more I read what the unions are up to or, or the more and more I read what management is like, well, it makes sense. I mean, if, if you're right. a worker and you got high inflation, you see this company has a lot of money and, and you know, the price of, of uh, steak is going up and you want, you know, or price of shoes are going up. You say, well, absolutely. I mean, I need to protect my own interests. And, you know, the same thing with management. You go, well, if the price of of machinery is going up, but the price of oil is going up. We need to make sure that we can afford that without, uh, you know, without harming our long run interest. So absolutely private interest dominates the market. How do you influence that? Well, what was successful in the book uh, in this period of the book is when the government realizes we have to put our own house in order first, Yes. uh, whether that's the Eisenhower years or uh, Paul Volcker with Ron Reagan and, and, you know, actually getting inflation down, tamping down on, on expectations of inflation in the 1980s. Um, you know, that is what restores price and wage stability. Now, of course, as a historian, it's a lot more complicated because you have to lay the institutional foundation. Management needs to, you know, again, this long ide- engagement with ideas about productivity, learning strategies of industrial labor relations, collective bargaining. Um, at the close of the book, I briefly talk about some of the uh, more cooperative methods of labor relations in um, places like Nucor or uh, what we see in some of the, uh, the, the auto industry, um, a more cooperative model than we had had in the mid-50s. And so it takes time to implement these new approaches, certainly, and that's important. Uh, but those aren't going to do any good if you have 8 to 10% inflation every year, because then you're just going to say, well, we need to keep up with the cost of living and right. we can raise prices in this environment because everybody else is. And so um, once you stabilize the macroeconomic climate, once fiscal policy and monetary policy uh, contribute to that, I think it's possible. And, and going forward, you know, I don't know if the, the unionization drives uh, that we're seeing at present, those are, are being driven by the cost of living or if this is really an institutional shift. Um, you know, it, it's, if it is an institutional shift, it's interesting because obviously union rates have fallen over the last 50 years t- and the private sector. Um, but also of course that the union drives that we see are, are, um, you know, Starbucks, they are, you know, Amazon and they're being done location by location, uh, which is also very interesting, which would, which will allow you to take a lot more local factors into account than some type of industry wide bargain, at least, at least at present, um, you know, right. the, the jury's still out on if is this trend going to continue. If if, if inflation miraculously goes to two percent a year tomorrow, uh, I think the Union Drive would probably have a lot less fire behind it. But you know, maybe it has some momentum. We will see in the future. Um, but I do think I do think that is the lesson for today: is that uh, we often hear a lot from Washington about, um, you know gasoline companies, there, their profit margins are increasing, or the meat industry is concentrated. And so they are gouging the public or, oh, well, we have concentration, at least, at least at that top, uh, you know, 10% or so of the economy with really outsized, uh, profit margin increases. And when we talk about that, uh, we're really putting the cart ahead of the horse here, which is that, you know, who allows those, you know, who creates the incentives for that, right? It's, Well, it's not just the private sector, right? It's government through fiscal policy, monetary policy, of course, also uh, competition policy and antitrust policy. In the book, I discuss a bit of a road not taken had antitrust policy viewed oligopoly as uh, anti-competitive and collusion in the 1950s. It's probably correct to say that uh, it is not. It's self-rational behavior. It's not an agreement in restraint of trade, but but that is an idea which is thrown about in the 1950s, um, and so you know we certainly hear about new antitrust reforms. I, I won't comment on those specifically, except to say, uh, you know, do no harm. <laughs> you know, right. sure at least if you're going to do it, do it right, and 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 don't right. don't uh, because you only get one shot uh, at a lot of these changes. So, uh, but yeah. certainly, I think you know the takeaway when we look at the world today, when we look at at the world of 50 years ago, we're seeing so many parallels. And the main takeaway is, uh, as I close the book, is saying that, you know, you you can't expect the private sector to do anything but follow its own self-interest. That's good. We want them to follow their own self-interest. And if you want to change that self-interest, you know, policymakers should expect to make changes in policy at the government level and not by telling people to avoid their own private self-interest.
1: Right. And is and you mentioned the kind of reversal in discussions about maybe increases in in labor organization uh taking another look at uh antitrust regulation and a third one a, a rise in discussion about federal minimum wage in the absence of uh labor organization and and that that summary that you just uh, used to bring everything into the current may be a perfect way to wrap it up. But I'll just offer you one more chance if there's something else you want to listeners to know about uh, the book. Please, please take the, the time now to do so.
0: No, sure. So I mean, it's Robin Pierre to pay Paul. It's you know, as I said it's it's. Uh, who would have thought it would have been this relevant? You know, when I was when I was writing the book, uh, you know, I wrote the book when when prices were stable, when labor uh, unions were were shrinking as a share of the private sector where, you know, sh- shareholder value was still the, you know, at least on paper, what management said it was doing and, and actually in practice was doing. And uh, the world might be changing now, uh, right? You know, we might actually have some push for stakeholder value in, in corporations. We might have a brand new labor movement. We might have, uh, you know, inflation that is going to remain high uh, for the at least the near future, if not, unfortunately, for, for some years to come. And so, uh, again, writing this book, you know we always look back to this era uh, what lessons did we learn from this era? How do we get out of the bad parts? did we forget the good parts? and uh, those lessons uh, for good or for ill are are even more uh, are even more relevant for today uh, than I think any historian could hope when when writing a book of history
1: I agree and you and you ignore those lessons at your own peril and for anyone that's working in industry today or in policy that didn't live through all this, which is everybody. Right. Um, that I, I highly recommend this book from Yale University Press. And uh, Samuel Milner, thank you so much for your time this morning. All right, well, thanks for having me.